Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa. Joining us in our third chair today is Jarrett. How's it going? Hello. I'm good. Even though it it hardly feels like October is over at all, (laughs) like it feels like there's a couple more days left. Somehow. Yeah, I know, right? I I felt like Halloween happened two weeks ago. I I don't know. Now that we're done with... uh, uh, Hold on. I'm sorry. Now that we're done with... Okay, this is the first November episode, and I really feel like if I have to say Spooktober every single week in October, that Sam should have to come up with some kind of musical cue for November. It always starts with a dame, doesn't it? Anyway, (laughs) here we are. It is now November, or at least it will be by the time you hear this episode, and we are taking a shot at November. Over the next four weeks, we'll be talking about the beautiful, beautiful genre that I like much better than horror called film noir. It's not really a genre, though. It's more of a mood. Or if you will, this podcast's favorite Adjective, vibe. It's all about vibes. I do have a question, though. It's also a noun, <laughs> by the way. You can also vibe as in verb. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the word vibely, though. It's a pretty flexible word. Yeah. I do have a question, though. So this is my first time doing Noirvember. I have, of course, watched a lot of noir before, but I have never dedicated an entire month to it. Jarrett, have you ever done Noirvember before? No. No. Okay. <laughs> so this is the first time for all of us. I, I will say, though, that I think November is much better than No Shave November. <laughs> yeah. yes. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I agree yes, with that. Yes, absolutely. As, as a matter of fact, this, this, this November is brought to you by Burma Shave. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke you'll actually get if you watch a lot of film noir. So this week... Along with Jarrett, we are talking about three noir films from the 1940s. We're going to be talking about Double Indemnity, Laura, and The Lady from Shanghai. Next week, we'll be talking... We're actually not going to spend very long in the first wave of noir this year. We're going to spend a lot more time in uh, the neo-noir time periods of the 80s. We'll skip right over the 70s. The 80s, the 90s, and then the 21st century. So we're going to take a look at reinventions, reinterpretations, remixes of noir after this week. But this week, we're going to look at some of the classics. We ought to know where it started to know where it goes. Yes. Where did it start? Well, it started where all things started, the Great Depression. (laughs) (laughs) All sad things. Yeah. So what's interesting is noir as a as a genre really comes into its own in the 1940s. And there's a couple of good reasons for that. The 1930s, of course, is when you see this great preponderance of crime fiction, pulp fiction, and crime writing by the word. Not unlike what we'll see in science fiction a little bit later, or frankly, at this point, too. That's more of the 50s, I think, right. would be the golden age of that science fiction pulp magazine yeah. type of thing. But you've got you've got Kane and Hammett and 
Chandler. I always want to call him Marlo, but that's his creation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Raymond. So, right. Yeah. So Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, James N. Kane, and a bunch of others. You have Mickey Spillane taking over in the 40s and into the 50s, but it's a very popular genre of writing. At the same time, in, in Hollywood, especially now that you've got the production code, ironically, one of the most popular genres is the gangster film, which it, it takes some, I think it's got some very anti-capitalist themes to it. You know, people affected by the Depression kind of vibe with Edward G. Robinson, who we see in Double Indemnity, and Jimmy Cagney and Paul Muni. You also have screwball comedies, and that's actually where The Thin Man comes in. The Thin Man is a weird screwball comedy slash detective movie. It is not film noir, but it's written by the original novels, written by Dashiell Hammett. Bottom line is, in the 30s, film is a lot of escapism. You move into the 40s, that's where you see a lot of issues being dealt with, reckoned with, and a lot of the more complicated things start to show up in, in film noir. You know, this reckoning with the fact that the 30s weren't that great. The French decided we would call this film noir, black film, because of, you know, kind of the griminess of these movies and you know, the dark lighting, things taking place on rain-soaked streets of L.A. or San Francisco. If it happens during a sunny day... It probably isn't noir, although by the mid-40s, we're already inverting that and showing noir happening in broad daylight, like with The Lady from Shanghai or even later with High Sierra. Right. I also feel like this genre is the genre that popularized. It is the genre that popularized the anti-hero, right? We had anti-heroes in film Everybody before this. Everybody loves an anti-hero. But yeah, we get a lot more of these complex main characters who are straight up tell us that they're not heroes, that they have sort of a, a code that they follow that doesn't necessarily coincide with lawful good, right? They're not outright villains either. They do draw the line somewhere, but they're not necessarily people they're not gonna like fall into the superman you know heroic category either i think there's a reason why a lot of these protagonists are private eyes but they don't necessarily have to be yeah there's the reason the term hard-boiled is used is they've been in that that crucible of of difficulty hard times and that heat has made them have that shell right um that only a dame can penetrate by the way (laughs) In a in a in a weird sexual reversal. Anyway, speaking of Jarrett, you watch Double Indemnity and these other films to prepare. What is your prior relationship with film noir? Um, I guess I probably first heard about it in college and watched a few. Then I don't. There's some on the list that I've seen, but other than like knowing it's a thing and watching a few of the films, I haven't done like a deep dive or anything like that. Uh, it's not a genre that I've ever, in theory, it seems like I should love it, but usually in practice, it's not my favorite. I think partially because I grew up with so many things that parodied, parodied it, a word that I can't say apparently, <laughs> <laughs> such as Looney Tunes and a lot of the 
and a lot of like comedies and stuff like that from the late 20th century. Now, you over on Wild Pretty Things, your podcast, along with Melissa, you guys talked about Bound earlier this year, which is definitely mm. drawing on what we're going to be talking about today is definitely a more modern take on the genre. In in short, how did you feel about that one? Oh, Bound is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you get into neo-noir, which you guys will be very soon. That's definitely a genre I have more experience with and more affinity for, which I think is just a, you know, generational thing. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, Brick is a movie that I did not finish because I understood it was doing noir and Mm -hmm. I would just rather go watch noir. So it's kind of the opposite (laughs) experience, right? Like, you know, uh, a lot of people call uh, Chinatown neo-noir, which mm. I'm not sure it is. I think it's just straight up noir. And then, you know, um, it'll be interesting when we talk about a film like Blood Simple next week or uh, Blue Velvet, which is, you know, really genre defying just because it's David Lynch. Are those things more original flavor or neo flavor, I guess, is what I'm saying. So, Yeah, I, I liked Brick. But I also, I think a lot of my experience with movies like this, and I see this amongst our friends, I didn't grow up watching a lot of classic films, Uh. a lot of old films. When I started picking my own movies and stuff as a teenager, a lot of times when I did watch older things, it was horror movies. I, I certainly saw a lot of things like The Wizard of Oz, you know, hundreds of times or whatever, but... Uh, I think there's a certain stylistic nature to a lot of classic films that doesn't work for me. That's interesting. Yeah, my dad, who was who was born in the '40s, actually hates black and white movies. Just just can't stand them. And I, I think that's interesting. But I mean, there's a lot. Uh, I don't like movies from like that big Technicolor Cinemascope era of the '50s into the '60s. Right? We all have those those things that that turned us off. This was the first noir was the first classic film. Anything that I watched, it was my introduction to, to classic films. So I, 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 it's funny having the opposite experience. Now saying that I do love Hitchcock, which is obviously someone who's influenced by noir a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I think that a lot of noir, it doesn't necessarily have to have thriller elements, but often thrillers and noir kind of, they meet a very interesting intersection a lot. Mm. Uh, let's talk really quickly before we get into Double Indemnity about some of the the tropes uh, or, or mandatory requirements of a noir film. Now, you're not required to have a femme fatale, but if you do, you have to have the sap who loves them. That is, that is one of the key relationships in a noir film is the the inverse power relationship between the woman and the man, which of course goes right up against the code, which is which is why you don't ha- you have to have evil punished at the end, right? So if if the woman usurps the power from the man, it has to be restored by the end somehow, or if they're untrustworthy in some right. way. I mean, I think it's interesting that a lot of femme fatales are married. Like they are either mm-hmm. trying to like get out of a marriage or 
they are bored with their marriage or they have some other agenda that they're trying to accomplish. And so there is this idea that these types of women, and it kind of goes back to the Madonna whore, right, paradigm, they are inherently untrustworthy. They're inherently sexual, right? And so that's why they have to be punished at the end of the film. Yeah, I had the thought watching these two films and with my general knowledge of this genre that the primary anxiety of this genre seems to be an empowered woman. Right. Yeah, and uh, I mean, do you have, you know, from watching these films, do you have any thought on why that is? What 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 we're trying to accomplish here? Well, you know, in a very general sense, I'm not a detailed expert on cultural uh, history of the early 20th century, but thinking about pre-Great Depression, the 20th, uh, the 20s, (laughs) I almost said 20th century, but specifically the 20s, one of the characteristics, vague characteristics is the liberated woman, you know, so that you could, this could be seen as a reaction to that partially, the party girl. I notice a lot of it, it's very rare for the women in these movies to wear short dresses, for example. There obviously there are scenes where they show what for the time would be a scandalous amount of skin, but it's usually in some specific context, such as the swimming scene in The Lady from Shanghai. Right. It's funny that uh two of the femme fatales well, wait, is it all three? No, it's not. Two of the three femme fatales are bleach blonde here. It's, right. It's almost like there are signs that, that this is a reaction to hypersexualization. Like, you know, the only the only one of the three who really comes out unscathed is the one with, like, the natural brown, I would assume, hair. Well, and I have... I, I actually think Laura is an inversion of the femme fatale trope. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that when we get to that film. But I, I also think that part of this, too, is they're afraid. The anxiety, like you said, Jarrett, is of women who know how to use their sexuality. Because as we know, men are powerless when it comes to women's sexuality. And so if women ever figure out how to use that to get men to do what they want then it might be all over for the men, right? Like, that seems to be the logic of these films. And I, so, I feel like you just explained socialism. I, I know. And so, I think you explained, <laughs> I think you may have just explained the Magna Carta, too. Like, I don't, wow. Yeah, so, like, there's, I mean, this this is a conversation that's been going on for centuries. Like, you always have these depictions of women who use their sexuality, and they're fallen women, they're evil women, they have to get their comeuppance. Um, you know, I think about, like, the wife of Bath, I think about Lilith, like, you have these these types, and so this is just sort of a distillation of that in the femme fatale. Somebody who uses their wiles, uses their sexuality to get what they want. And like you said, Sam, usually the main character is a sap or they, the femme fatale is surrounded by saps who they use to do their bidding and get away scot-free. At least that's what they're trying to do. One of the other big uh, tropes of film noir is the idea of sinking, of going down. And the emotions like paranoia, guilt, loss, 
insecurity. Basically, if you've ever listened to the first side of Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine, that's noir. <laughs> that's noir. <laughs> I was up above it. Now I'm down in it. It's a terrible lie. And gray would be the color if I had a heart. That's basically film noir right there. Somebody make this man a film noir movie to score. Oh, that'd be great. I'd watch that. I mean, you could... I mean, I mean he did... Uh, isn't that all the Fincher movies? Well, I was going <laughs> to say, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is... I mean, most of the uh, Scandinavian crime fiction, uh, that, that big wave, especially the Swedish crime fiction with Stieg Larsson and Henning Mankel, you know, with uh, Wallander, you have... And a bunch of other series. I, I love that that whole vibe that they have going on up there. It's like film noir with Ikea. I mean, speaking of looping back to the pot, Wild Pretty Things and neo-noir, you can add to that list of Reznor-Ross scores, the what I would say is one of the best neo-noirs, Gone Girl. Yeah. I do wonder, though, and I would stake a claim on this, I think film noir... And it's many, many descendants. I think that may be the strongest genre of American film. Because it its tendrils are in... I mean, is Hitchcock as successful in that prime, the universal years, uh, if noir hadn't been such a big deal before that? Because if you look at um, some of the movies that he made, Shadow of a Doubt, Suspicion saboteur he's doing that kind of spy suspense stuff but when you get into things like notorious or spellbound you start to see those film noir elements creep in and by the time we get to rear window vertigo psycho the birds uh, and all those films they're not really there anymore he's really moved on but I wonder if he gets to that point, if he isn't able to incorporate those elements of noir beforehand. And that, so that to me, that's one example of how this genre of film noir really uh, is something that is, I mean, I think you could even call it the backbone of American cinema in some ways. I would counter that with the Western, but... Ugh. Ugh. I know you don't like Westerns, but you have to admit that it is a quintessential American genre. Oh, sure. Sure. See, I would say Vertigo is kind of the bridge between classic noir and neo-noir. That's, uh, yeah. And and, I mean, there's a scene in Laura that we'll talk about. I guess we should move on to uh, the actual films. But there's a scene in Laura that made me think of Vertigo. I actually said, what in the Vertigo is happening here? So we'll there's, a, there's a scene in the lady from Shanghai that also made me think of a scene from Vertigo. So yeah, I, I agree with you, Jarrett. Yeah. I think Notorious kept coming to my mind when I was watching these, like that really felt like, I mean, I think you're right about Vertigo, but Notorious struck me as another of Hitchcock's films. That's really in line with film noir, but let's talk about, let's not talk about Hitchcock. Let's talk about Billy Wilder. Let's talk about double indemnity. Jarrett apparently has controversial opinions. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um. <laughs> I mean, it's controversial if you don't if if you think Double Indemnity is a five star film, then I think everything you're about to say is probably controversial. <laughs> so, Double Indemnity from 1944, as you said, this is directed by Billy Wilder, also co-written by him, along with 
the aforementioned James M. Kane, who wrote the novel it's based on the year before. And then Raymond Chandler, even though it's not based on one of his stories, he also worked on the script. Um, the cast here, main cast, the important people, I feel like Fred McMurray plays Neff. And <laughs> the most uh, pun intended striking thing to me about him is this running motif of him lighting a match with just one hand. Yeah. Yeah. With like thumbnail. with his thumbnail. I yeah. think that's so awesome. I, uh, I asked about that and Sam apparently had, Sam well, had to explain strike anywhere matches to me, which I didn't know were a thing. But, but see, I know this because I directed how uh, I directed a Pinter one act one time. And so I said to my friend Katie, who was my assistant director, costumer, set designer, prop master, my my girl Friday. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know. I said to her, I said, I really want this match strike to be on a boot. And so we did that we we that is when I discovered. So this is all the way back in um two thousand one, I think. That's when we discovered that they don't make strike anywhere matches much or depending on where you are at all they aren't technically illegal but good luck finding them they are like a super duper fire hazard in fact in the film edward g robinson's character mentions they always seem to to go off in my pocket that's why you can't actually find them anymore what we ended up doing was for the play Katie cut off some of the um, the boxes, you know, the side of the box where you light the match, and affixed it to the bottom of a boot. So that's that's how we cheated. Smart. But but basically, Fred McMurray is using the strike anywhere match, and he must have been taking some biotin because he had some strong nails. Good for him. <laughs> it's impressive. It is yeah. an impressive motif. <laughs> uh, so then we have uh, Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis. And as you mentioned, Edward G. Robinson playing Keys, great character name. And you mentioned the the line about the matches going off in his pocket. And I think that's because he carries around such an impressive collection of office tools in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he also has the plot device of the very, I assume at the time, very modern. I think it's a direct-to-cylinder dictaphone. I think is so. The device that's used. Yeah, might come back to that. And then uh, Gene Heather plays Lola. But the real star of this film to me is Edith Head, the <laughs> head of the costume department. Um, and really just like the greatest cinematic costumer of all time. Right. Oh, Can yeah. We agree on that. I said that when when we did our Hitchcock episode a while back, I think that any movie she's associated with. She is like the single greatest scene stealer who you never see, <laughs> right? Absolutely. I mean, Barbara Stanwyck is, her whole character is in this costume, or in the costumes, <laughs> I should say. Well, in the, I think the backdrop on Letterboxd for this movie is one of the scenes where they're at the convenience store and Phyllis is wearing the glasses. The <laughs> I love those glasses. And I'm very certain that Edith Head picked those out. Those are very Edith Head glasses. Are either one of you familiar 
with Fred McMurray or Barbara Stanwyck's other works? I am not. I don't think so. Jarrett, I I know we are we are not so far apart in age. Did you ever happen to catch, and this would be on Nick at Night, did you ever happen to catch My Three Sons? I don't think so. My Three Sons is a situation comedy in which a single father raises three children. He is the ultimate family man. He just has no wife. Now, there are... It, there are two characters, I believe. One leaves midway through the run and, and the other one. But there's a character, I believe his name is Bub. He's basically like a... He's not a family member, if I remember. The second guy is, if I recall. But So it's like a house full of men. It's like, um, it's like full house minus Dave Coulier. Or actually, it'd be minus John Stamos. <laughs> um, and, this, and it's all sons. The reason I bring this up is, guess what? That's Fred McMurray. I know Fred McMurray as a TV dad, a wholesome TV dad, mm. a wholesome milk drinking TV dad. And so when I saw this, I was like, oh, that's different. Barbara Stanwyck. So Barbara Stanwyck is in The Lady Eve, which has been on my watch list for a while. It is so good. Uh, she So Preston Sturgis is a director who's also often mentioned in the same sentence with Frank Capra. He's a little bit more... Uh, I would say maybe has a little bit more biting wit. Not maybe, he does. Uh, but Barbara Stanwyck was a Frank Capra regular. She's been in, I want to say, half a dozen of Capra's films. A lot of his early works. The one that comes to mind is The Bitter Tea of General Yen, which, boy, that doesn't age well, but that's where we are. She is also, after Gene Arthur subs in for a while, and Donna Reed later in It's a Wonderful Life, but Barbara Stanwyck is in my favorite uh, Frank Capra movie, Meet John Doe. So that's, that's, again, how I know her. She is the plucky heroine, and so she is taking also a heel turn in this movie. So these are two actors I know from being, like, good, wholesome people to heels. <laughs> well, and we didn't we find out last night uh, when we were... Not last night. The night we were watching this, did we find out as well that like all of these actors were kind of taking a risk on this film because other actors were passing on it because they didn't want to be associated with a project that was so sexual, that was about uh, infidelity, that was kind of trash to put words to put quotes around it. Um, so like all of these, like all of these people were like third choices, third or fourth choices because these other actors kept passing on it. So it's interesting that they're now so iconic for these characters. That's that's also interesting. So w when this film came out, was it revered at the time or was it also seen as trashy after it came out? I I think that's a I mean that's a really good question. I think at this point, you know, this is this is post Kane, post Casablanca. Of course, one was a failure, the other was a hit. But we are moving more into a genre. Uh, you know, you're going to see Humphrey Bogart do all of his great, you know, somebody who did a lot of gangster films in the 30s make the turn to noir as well. So I don't, I don't know, but it, it seems like it became a popular enough genre around this time that it couldn't be that bad, right? Well, popular isn't always critically acclaimed, of course, but I guess... 
I, I'm not aware enough of how what the relationship between critical response and uh, success was in the 40s. Right. It You know, box office numbers are truly an interesting thing because, of course, the box office was not created the same way from a business perspective back then. So it doesn't mean as much. Now, this was nominated basically for all the Oscars. Okay. And so that was what I was about to look up. <laughs> and well, it was. And, and it definitely, this is something that's already started coming up this year with uh, uh, Avatar, uh, Black Panther 2 about to drop, and, and some other movies. We, you know, we get into this conversation every year about how all the movies that are nominated for Oscars, or nearly all of them, are ones that nobody sees. They're not the popular mm-hmm. movies. I think in the 1940s, you see a lot more, and the 30s, with, with um, like Gone with the Wind, It Happened One Night. You see a lot more parallel between movies that people like and movies that get nominated for Oscars. Well, I think the culture around movies was also very different. I mean, you had more of a studio system, so you had more of the same actors working on a series of films together. You had, like, the theater culture was a little bit different. Like, everybody just saw what was available, and that's what you saw. And I do wonder if that affected the way that people talked about movies, the way critics talked about movies differently than say they do now where there is sort of this divide between what's popular and what's critically successful i mean it sounds like from this if if i were to draw any conclusion from this discussion i it it sounds like we all love this movie jared (laughs) (laughs) that's a that's a nice segue is a bit is a bit strong I, I do think um it drags a little bit in the second act for me after I watched the film, I checked the runtime and I was shocked to see that it was just over a hundred minutes because it really felt longer to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partially because there's so much percussion to the first act and a lot of the iconic dialogue from this film is from the first act and like the much parodied, much, uh, I don't know if maligned is the right word, but it's kind of it's it's partially seen as like a shark jump jumping moment for uh code films i think even though it's early in that era i believe is the scene where they're like suppose i do this suppose you do uh, suppose i such and such and they're just (laughs) back and forth with the double entendres until she mentions her husband and then he leaves and I, i love that scene and the first act was you know funnier than a lot of comedies I've seen. But like I said, I think once, and I do think it's a little bit, again, generational thing. I'm sure at the time this whole plot plays a lot differently, but by the time I kind of realized again, because I've seen some of these films where this thing was going, I was like, okay, we have to deal with this character again that I don't care about. (laughs) Well, let me ask you. So a lot of noir films are either about cops or they're cop adjacent in terms of like you have a private detective that's investigating a crime of some kind. There is a crime in this film, but the people investigating it are the insurance company, not the cops, because this is about a fraudulent insurance claim. What did you think about sort of that twist on 
like this sort of narrative. How did it how did it feel to you being about insurance fraud instead of like some more straightforward type of mystery? I think it's one of the things in this film of the many things in this film that maybe think, oh, where that's is this where that comes from? You know, was this the first movie to do that? Or is it just the one that popularized it? For example, there's a very, very short, I would say almost pointless scene of, of him bowling. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, is oh, that why it. bowling is a thing in the Big Lebowski? Right. Just because of this movie? I mean, it could be, right? You know. That that made me laugh. I I just and and that's Tessa actually had an observation right around then. Uh, do you remember what you said at that point that the film establishes something about Neff that's never really said out loud? Oh yeah, Neff is an alcoholic. Like I I don't know if anyone else yeah. picked up on that because the film isn't sure. as straightforward about it as say it is about like Humphrey Bogart's Philip Marlowe being alcoholic in the Maltese Falcon. So, but yeah, ne- he's clearly an alcoholic. Like he's, he's drinking that entire time. So this, this is at the very beginning of Billy Wilder's film career. And the movie that he makes immediately after this uh, is a movie called the lost weekend, which is a tour. It is simultaneously a code approved movie about alcoholism and the closest you can get to leaving Las Vegas in the 1940s with a code movie. So I will tell you that Wilder is thinking about alcoholism in, in a way that I don't, I don't know how common it is. I mean, it's one of those things that it's like, we, we are aware that this exists we're not going to talk about it, especially on screen. But I thought that was an interesting concept. It also occurred to me, do we trust this guy? Is, is Neff, we're supposed, to say, we're supposed to be seeing what happened. And we're thinking because Neff is confessing, it must be the truth. And I've always watched it that way. But I think maybe because you mentioned that, maybe, I don't know, or maybe it's just been time since I'd seen it the last time. Is Neff telling us what happened? Do we know for sure this is all the truth? Uh, that's a good question. I hadn't <laughs> considered it until you. I mean, memory is tricky, right? Pose that, though. So it's hard mm-hmm. to know when, because nobody else in this situation has a chance to defend themselves or to present an alternative series of facts. I mean, I think he's as reliable a narrator as we're going to get. I mean, everyone else is either dead or wasn't there to begin with. Yeah, and I don't even, again, I don't know enough about film history to know if unreliable narration predates Hitchcock in mainstream cinema, at least. Unreliable narration predates it in terms of literary stuff, but I don't know. Sure, of course. I don't know about, but I mean, noir is a pretty literary genre, so it could be trying to tap into that. The The thing that, I, that strikes me about him is that I think he's sort of lying to himself about his real motivation. I don't know if he's lying to us specifically because he seems to want us to believe that his motivation was about Phyllis, that they have this like doomed romance and that she like pulled him into this or like he had these ideas because she put them there. However, the more I think about, and this did not occur to me the first time I watched this film, which granted was like 10 years ago, the more I think about the insurance company angle and his relationship with Keys and the fact that Keys 
is he thinks Keyes is this great guy, but the more you actually look at this character, the more you realize that his entire job is basically to make sure that the insurance company doesn't have to pay money, right, to to people for their claims. And so I feel like there's actually quite a bit of Neff's motivation, uh, Neff's motivation that is not about Phyllis. That's about getting one over on the insurance company. The idea that he can come up with this perfect plan to defraud the insurance company. And I think a lot of it comes from this resentment over what Keys represents, like what the the big wigs at that company do represent, even though he does love Keys as a person this idea that like he's selling these people insurance, but he sees it as this scam in which he sells them the insurance. And then the insurance company has all this power to make sure that they don't have to make good on those particular policies. I mean, I'm curious to know what you all think. Cause that's something that really stood out to me in this was him basically being like, it's about Phyllis. It's about Phyllis. She's the villain. But then you get these like moments where he's like, and when you've been in it so long, you start thinking about ways you could defraud the system. And I just think that that's a really interesting perspective on it. Maybe I'm just being cynical here, but I do feel like the trope in these films with the man always being kind of like, oh, I was in love with her immediately is a little bit of shining their own uh, guilt, I guess. I, I, I'm looking for a different term, but they're they're covering up something that's a little more dark about themselves by saying that. Cause I really don't, obviously all these women are, are, are beautiful, especially in a traditional sense at, in this time period, I assume, but I really don't believe any of them are completely motivated by their like first encounters with these women. If Neff were a better person, would he like take advantage of this whole situation and start dating the guy's daughter? That mm. doesn't seem like the actions of a person with much. Yeah. I got a lot of graduate vibes too from this because he does seem to be dating both Phyllis and Lola and he seems to be gradually brushing off Phyllis even before he realizes that she is plotting against him as well. So I wonder, I, I've been thinking about your, your comment about uh, the, the film kind of dragging there in the second act and into the beginning of the third act. And I was thinking about other Billy Wilder films. I was thinking about um, Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina. Oh, what's the other one? Uh, Some Like It Hot. One, one, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the one we talked about a few weeks ago. There's so many ago. of them. Well, I think that one of the things about noir is it comes out of a, a, oddly enough, a screwball comedy tradition where the twist happens there at the end and it has to happen at the end. You know, like she can't fully betray him until right before the movie's over. And that's, that's from that screwball genre. And I think what Billy Wilder does in all the films that I've mentioned is that he creates a situation and then he wants us to live in it for a while before that kind of final thing that ties everything up. You know, whether it's kind of the madcap thing that happens at the end of one, two, three, or it's noir again with Sunset Boulevard, or it's, you know, tying up the 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 cross-dressing hijinks and some like it hot. But it's that it's that desire to live in these moments before we really do the turn. And, and I think that that's what 
what you're I think that's where the drag happens. It is dragging because it's staying with a moment instead of moving. And that could be problematic. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Yeah, I think <laughs> on to something there. I just want to know what Phyllis's calendar looks like. Cause she has like all of these different men and people coming in and out of her life. And I love how she's just like, no, not not Thursday afternoon. Come this afternoon. No, don't come bef- after eight thirty. Come before eight thirty. <laughs> and I just I just really want to know like, what does her calendar look like? I am fascinated by her ability to balance all of these moving pieces of her plot. That's all. I mean, and I think Barbara Stanwyck is like one of the iconic femme fatales, so she does a great job in this too, with the assistance of Edith Head, as aforementioned. So, Jarrett, would you say good, not great? Yeah, like I said, I you know, the dialogue itself is iconic. I also I don't find McMurray to be compelling as a leading man. <laughs> That's just an issue I have with a lot of popular movies in general. Um, there's a lot of films people really love where I'm just like this leading man doesn't work for me. So it's you know it's a very personal take. But yeah, obviously this is a good movie, and I and I see why. It's, you know, often on, you know, top 100 lists and probably the most notable noir, maybe. I don't think it's the best. though. It's not even the best film we're going to discuss on this podcast. I am really fascinated to hear you talk about that. I'm also interested to hear you talk about Dana Andrews and Orson Welles in comparison to Fred McMurray. But before we get to that, we're gonna be t- we're gonna be moving into neo noir after this week, but while we're here, let's talk about a few of the original nineteen forty noir tropes that we haven't hit on yet. I mean, of course, as we've clearly set up, as Tessa you mentioned with the insurance fraud angle, rather than a private detective or a cop or a lawyer, as we get or to in the lawyer, lady from yeah. Shanghai. But noir isn't always based on crime fiction, but it is a lot. Uh, as you mentioned, two of the big names, James M. Kane and Raymond Chandler, had their hands on this movie. Raymond Chandler is best known for that private detective fiction. Dashiell Hammett had two detectives to Philip Marlowe's, uh, or sorry, I did it again to Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe, uh, Sam Spade, and uh, Nick and Nora Charles are products from Dashiell Hammett, whereas James and Kane, you know, gives us this double indemnity plot, but he also does a lot more domestic noir. The Postman Always Rings Twice, Mildred Pierce, uh, things like that. So it's, it's interesting to think about how noir is mostly known for crime fiction, but does spread out into more domestic situations. Oh, absolutely. And I I really like, you have like a whole list of actors here, but I do want to point out that Humphrey Bogart, who is possibly the most prolific maker of noir at this point, he has played both Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade. I think both, both of those characters, I think a lot of times people think of Humphrey Bogart first when they think of those two. And I know the first noir film that I ever saw was The Maltese Falcon. And so to me, whenever I think of noir, that's the that's the film that I think of immediately 
is his version of Sam Spade specifically. Yeah, we've got, as I mentioned, you know, there's there's the femme fatales. There's no shortage of like star power oh, on the no. side of the femme yeah. fatale. In addition to Barbara Stanwyck, you have Joan Crawford, again, who was in Mildred Pierce. You have Lauren Bacall, who, you who know, started many to, films uh, with Bogart. Bogart right. Yes. But in The Big Sleep, uh, you have Lana Turner. Um, of course, when you talk about The Thin Man, going back to really not noir in that case, but you have Myrna Loy. Um, you can pull in Gene Harlow, Carol Lombard, Rita Hayworth, who's in the. Um, the lady from Shanghai, uh, Maura, not Maura, Jean Tierney, <laughs> Jean Tierney, who's in, who's in Laura. And on the other side, we've mentioned Humphrey Bogart, but there's also like your John Garfields and your William Powells, who I think stand up maybe a little bit better than Fred McMurray. But yeah, you also have, in terms of film genre, outside of the detective film, you have, uh, noir thrillers like your spy movies like the third man shadow of a doubt you can also throw in gaslight in this category if you like which ingrid bergman beat uh stanwick for the oscar that year i was just noticing which i think is a mistake mm-hmm. but you know again from a very different time period looking back on this <laughs> but she did you know some great work in those noir thrillers with with hitchcock uh, especially mm-hmm. The other big offshoot of the noir film is the noir heist film. Uh, Probably the best example of this is The Asphalt Jungle, which has uh, in a supporting role Marilyn Monroe. So it's it's a great, it's one of the first noir films I ever saw. Other examples of this are The Killers and High Sierra, a daylight noir starring Humphrey Bogart. You know, this may be shocking, but I haven't seen Maltese Falcon. I know that's one of the films that, like, the MacGuffin comes yes. from. Is that a heist movie? Or it, No. Okay. It's like a... Yeah, the, so, the term of the MacGuffin kind of comes from that film, especially because the Malte- the, it's named after the MacGuffin. The Maltese Falcon is literally a plot device that everyone's looking for throughout the entire film. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a variation on the whodunit, and instead of it being a murder, it's who's got the thing, who's got the MacGuffin. Yeah. It's just a way of, of course, as you know, with MacGuffins, it's just a way of motivating the action. And what's really good about MacGuffins, they pass code. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like, they can be whatever. It yeah, doesn't matter. Whatever you want them to be. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think it's interesting, too, if we're going to talk about noir and the way it comes out of crime fiction because it definitely evolves away from that in neo-noir although you still have a lot of these elements in it is that it has this like very specific style of dialogue especially voiceovers voiceovers are huge in noir because usually you're getting it from the perspective of the main character who's sort of relating a story to you and it's usually from the perspective of someone who's already been through it so they have all of these like insights into what's happening that they didn't have while they were going through it but it's so literary like people do not talk like like Fred McMurray does in the in uh Double Indemnity. They do in Kevin Williamson TV shows uh, Tessa. They don't talk like that. They don't <laughs> you know think like that to themselves as they're going along. But they're having all of these like very interesting ethical discussions usually with themselves like you know was this right? Was this wrong? You know does it matter? And I 
think it's very watchable in a lot of ways, but as you pointed out, Jared, it's also very, very ripe for parody <laughs> by a lot of people. Um, but I just, I do think it's very watchable at the same time because it does feel like you're reading a crime novel. And I think a lot of the complexity of the dialogue in noir, I mean, it stands up to something like the screwball comedy, which is right. all dialogue. That's the whole point of a screwball words comedy. Minute. Yeah, words yeah. per minute. So it it does have this very interesting tie to these other genres of the time in that it's looking for this elevated dialogue. It's looking for cleverness in its dialogue and that literary style instead of looking for perhaps more realism that we'll see in later versions of noir. Did you have thoughts on the voiceover, Jarrett? Well, again, it's more something of like just connecting to other cultural things because that's how my brain works. And I did have the thought that it's probably the most existential film genre, at least mainstream film genre. So it's appropriate that Hitchcock, Wells, some of the directors like that who get more philosophical later in their careers um, work in this genre. And then I also was thinking about how this influences uh, Blade Runner, which is one of the more existential mainstream sci-fi movies. And I had the thought is at least the theatrical version of Blade Runner, the last 40s style noir. I mean, it's integrating, it's cyberpunk noir. And so it's integrating like two right. different styles together. Uh, but I definitely, I like that you brought up the theatrical version because both Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford hated that fucking voiceover <laughs> that they made Harrison Ford yeah. do. And of course, Harrison Ford sounds so bored as he's like doing that voiceover in the theatrical version. But that to me is a clear sign that the studio who was at this point making those decisions wanted to tie it more firmly back into that 40s film tradition. I'm really glad that the final cut exists and that they took that out. But you can definitely say that the Deckard of Blade Runner is more in the tradition of Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade. Honestly, he's more uh, Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe than he is like the Deckard of the novel who that novel came yes. out in 68. So it, it doesn't have as many of those noir elements as the film does. So I think you're absolutely right. I think Ridley Scott is working in that tradition. And then the studio, when they thought that the film wasn't going to work the way Ridley had it, they thought, oh, well, let's just make this more genre. Like, let's just lean deeper into it. So I think you're absolutely right about that comparison. It has the kept woman who's maybe or maybe not um, empowered. <laughs> well, and it's funny because Philip K. Dick, I'm like going down a rabbit hole now, but Philip K. Dick was obsessed with like what he called the dark haired girl, the cold dark haired girl which you can get all Freudian about that if you want. But he he was obsessed with like this android woman um, who the way he described her is very much like a femme fatale. And Rachel in the novel is more femme fatale. She's more deadly than the Rachel in the, in the film. So I, I do think that even though Dick wasn't writing noir, his ideas very neatly lend themselves to noir adaptation. Okay, so before we move on to Laura, I just want to say really quickly, I want to plant a seed. We have a lot of exciting ideas 
coming up for, for the podcast in 2023. One of those is uh, the, the likely to be renamed, perhaps not, Momble Book Club and Associated Reading Challenge. So on the topic of adaptations of crime fiction, I boy, I have a feeling next to November, we might find ourselves talking about some Chandler or some Hammett or some Kane. And I, I think that would be great. I, I love that genre. I love that time period. I love the writing style. It's just so eminently readable. I think that's why people like these films. I think uh, in the 40s specifically, obviously neo-noir diverges from this a little bit. But yeah, like it reminds you of reading like that kind of novel. So I uh, should have mentioned Double Indemnity is 1944. Came out in the summertime. A few months later, right before the end of the year, another film was released. Another film noir classic named Laura. Before we get into the specifics of the film, I have a question for, for both of you. This is a question that is brought to you by a very interesting opening scene. It kind of reminds me of Mr. Burns and all of his splendor. Um, <laughs> but whoops among us hasn't used a typewriter in the bathtub. Like, I, I think that's one of those universal experiences. Right? It's such a weird opening scene, and yet he, we keep getting scenes of him writing in the bathtub throughout the, the film. And I don't know what that tells us about this character. I, but... I wrote in the bathtub this morning, Tessa. What about you, Jared? <laughs> this is pre-Dalton Trumbo, right? So it's not a, it's not a reference to him. I, although I think so, although we're about to talk about blacklisting and graylisting. So, you know, I think you're kind of on brand there. I did I did have a reading and smoking in the bathtub phase. There's there's nothing wrong with that except for a wet book. <laughs> that is a problem. <laughs> it it's a great opening. I I don't know that there are many better opening scenes. It's like a what what is happening? It is it is it's great. This film is directed by Otto Preminger who much like Billy Wilder, will go on to things that he is perhaps better known for. He made Anatomy of a Murder, Advise and Consent, Bunny Lake is Missing. You know, these are films that you've heard of, if not seen. This film was added, so Laura was added to the National Film Registry in 99. It's on Roger Ebert's list of great movies. It's the number four movie on the AFI Best Mystery list. It's based on a novel by Vera Caspery, and she was a communist. She, unlike Lucy, she did not deny it or did not say it happened by accident. As a writer, she was gray-listed, if not out-and-out blacklisted. But, you know, weird that a communist would make the, uh, the bourgeoisie pig, the writer in the tub, the murderer. It's weird. Weird. <laughs> Who would have suspected who possibly could have known Dana Andrews. Is Dana Andrews a better leading man in a noir film than Fred McMurray, Jarrett? Yes. Why? It just works better for me as a lead. So I, I didn't rewatch this movie. This is the one of the three that I had already seen. Uh -huh. I actually watched this as homework for Wild Pretty Things. Oh, great. A year and a half ago <laughs> when we did Firewalk With Me. Oh, wow. I so, think that's right. So there's a Twin Peaks connection here, perhaps? 
Not perhaps, like oh. definitely. I think <laughs> like, you should tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, if we want to get into that, I mean, David Lynch, uh, who you're talking about next week, right? That is correct. Is a director who, like a lot of directors of his generation, wears his influences on his sleeve or on his celluloid, if you will. <laughs> um, the main of those being The Wizard of Oz, Sunset Boulevard, and Vertigo, all of which he has talked about. I don't remember if he's talked about Laura or not, but... I think we could prove in a court of law that the reason Laura Palmer is named Laura is because of this movie. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. And that I don't, I don't know which comes first, the inspiration of this film or the concept of Twin Peaks and then, well, let's name her Laura because, mm-hmm. but you know, you have this classic film that is about a man being in love and so obsessed with a dead woman and that's what Twin Peaks is about, a whole town, specifically, you know, the main character, uh, Agent Cooper, being obsessed with the dead woman. But since we're talking about that, I also think there's a lot of, you know, Billy Wilder is one of David Lynch's favorite directors. Sunset Boulevard is probably the film that makes David Lynch even interested in directing when he's mainly a visual artist. But I don't know if you want me to to go into that because it may be hard to stop me once you do. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Have you heard the Ray Peterson song, Tell Laura I Love Her? Um, I'm not sure. It's, it's name-checked in the film version of High Fidelity. Jack Black uh, talks about it. The, it is, so, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there was that genre of teenage death songs. And, uh, you know, Last Kiss, Teen Angel, those kinds of things. Uh, Tell Laura I Love Her by Ray Peterson and The End of the World by Skeeter Davis are by far the best of that genre. But Tell Laura I Love Her is a song that's exactly about what you think it is. It fits right in with this obsession over, over women named Laura. It's so interesting that you brought that up. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Gene Tierney plays Laura Hunt. And if you haven't seen this film, you absolutely should. The beginning of the film is an investigation by a police detective, Mark McPherson, played by Dana Andrews. So we're, we're, we're getting away from the insurance and back to the typical police investigation. Two very odd things happen in this movie. This would probably be, in case you haven't figured it out, we're, 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 we're full spoiler now. We, we swear and we spoil. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> so anyway, two very odd things happen in the middle of what is otherwise a pretty typical police procedural. One, in what I would like to call the what in the vertigo is happening moment, The detective falls asleep in Laura's home, wakes up, and he is in love with her somehow. I guess he fell asleep looking at her painting, and it's a good painting. I'm not going to take that away from her. But he he falls in love with her in this weird kind of like, kind of, it's a film effect that makes you think what we're seeing is a dream sequence. It's not. It's supposed to denote passage of time. 
but it's really weird because the next thing that happens, and yes, Jarrett, the Twin Peaks connection is definitely clear here. Laura Hunt walks in. And and see, so yeah, I definitely see it now, Jarrett. I definitely see the connection. <laughs> but it's such a weird <laughs> My movie. My work is we done. Get, we get to the halfway point and then everything changes. What did you both think about that that moment when things are not what they seemed? For a couple of reasons. First of all, I, without getting into spoilers for the first season of The Expanse, there is a certain plot line in the first season of The Expanse that makes a lot more sense to me now. Um, so I would, I would also say that there is a connection to that as well. But I really like this because I think... What Laura is doing, and I think what makes it such a good noir film, is that it is playing with the formula. So Double Indemnity, for how good it is, it is perhaps establishing that formula. Um, it follows that pretty pretty strictly in terms of like the plot beats of a noir film. The Lady from Shanghai does the same thing. This film, though, it it basically convinces us that it is going to be an investigation of a murder, but then suddenly it's like, well, yeah, it still is, but who's murder? Who was murdered, right? And who, why, you know, was it because of Laura? Did Laura do it? I also think that this film really plays with the idea of the femme fatale trope. I mentioned this earlier. It is supposed to mystify the audience because so much of who Laura is for the first half of the film, we get from other people. We get from her apartment. We get from her painting. We get from Lidecker, who's in love with her. We get from Shelby, who is perhaps using her, but also might be in love with her. It's hard to tell. And we don't really know who she is, except for we know that Mark loves her. And so the question is, is she as innocent as she seems? So usually the twist is the dame did it. But this is the twist in this one is that she didn't do it, right? So it's... It is really interesting because you don't know that until the very end. And there are things about her that do seem genuinely suspicious. So I I think this is actually a very well done twist because it does keep you guessing, but not in a way that feels contrived at all. I do want to hit on a couple of technical things. But I want to say first, as we're talking about this movie, I realize I like it more than I thought I did. I'm actually going to change my letterboxed rating of it i think that might also be because i did not like the lady from shanghai which we'll talk about in a bit but i do want to mention as i said two technical things one that um this this moment of uncertainty that happens in the film is a very common noir trope and it's usually represented by the screen kind of going blurry or fuzzy or you know that it's not really a wipe but it is a camera effect. You you see this a lot in in noir films, mostly because poor Humphrey Bogart is getting sapped. He's a <laughs> sap, and he's getting sapped with a sap. So the sap gets sapped with a sap, <laughs> and it's there to denote unconsciousness, the passage of time, things changing. That is replicated pretty well in this movie. The other one that is. Uh, that is not replicated very well is so coming over from the gangster film is the use of shadow and an overall light in uh, noir films. So something that Howard Hawks does very, very well back in um, with Scarface. Yeah. That Howard Hawks does with Scarface 
is there's a scene where light is reflected through uh, a window and the window pane paints an X on the character. And so you know what's about to happen. And there isn't one of those that I recall in Double Indemnity, but the blinds uh, are always projecting light in a very, like, you know it's light outside, but this thing is filtering it out. And, that, and it's very much symbolic. One of the problems with bringing noir out into the daylight, if you're not doing it purposefully, you, you start to kind of get out of the groove of the noir element. And that's what I saw happen in Laura. Not that it isn't interesting, but that was my, my first observation. I think the other thing that I'll bring up too is there's some really fun bodywork in Double Indemnity where, where Phyllis is behind the door while, uh, while Keyes is going back to the elevator. That definitely happens at the end of this film. Uh, the, the second door, the kitchen door that somehow goes out into the hallway as well. Like there's always these, these plot devices that kind of enable physicality to move the plot along at the end. It's interesting. So in some Another ways, connection to the screwball comedy too. Yes. So yeah, in some ways this, this film ends, even though it ends with, with gunplay and death. It's emulating screwball comedy in a way more than it is noir, which is interesting, but different. Well, and it's interesting, too, because usually the punishment for the femme fatale for being so sexual is that she has to die or something bad has to happen to her. But we don't get punishment here. I mean, we do get marriage. I mean, that is the implication is that it's, it's a if, comedy. If Jane so Austen ends in, did film noir. That's yeah, what, but it ends that's in marriage. But it be. is interesting that like as far as we can tell from this film, Laura has been with at least three different people and is now marrying a fourth person. Usually that's the kind of behavior that gets punished. But unless you think marriage is a punishment, which I mean, it could be. And she's she's also a girl boss. Let's not forget. Yeah, yeah she is. She's like running her own. Uh, she could run Britain. Yeah, she's very workers' <laughs> rights, too, which yeah. I, I appreciate. Which, I mean, seems like it would come from what you said about Caspery, her her right. politics. And and so before we go any further, I think the one thing that we can definitely talk about a little bit more is one of those men, Shelby Carpenter, played by the featured artist on Michael Jackson's Thriller. That's right, <laughs> Vincent Price. <Wow. laughs> Is that what you think he's most well known for? I I can never no, get over no. how tall that man is. Every time I see him, it's like I can't. I like it's like I don't remember how actually tall he is until I see him in something. I'm like, wow, it's like a head above everyone Six, four. else. It it really feels like when he showed up in this movie, I'm like, ooh, a wild Vincent Price appeared. <laughs> yeah, not his. Uh, yeah, it's fare. kind of like the Marilyn Monroe and and um, all about Eve. Yes. It's like. Bonus, you know, <laughs> I just wanted to shout out our friends at Killer Bees, um, Toria Garrett, are currently carry, co- covering Vincent Price for their season finale. I think it's a two-part podcast, cool. and that's uh, thanks to them. I learned, I don't know how I didn't know this, that he's from St. Louis, my former oh, really? setting. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that either. That's really interesting. But yeah, Vincent Price on... Opposite to McMurray, Vincent Price is probably my favorite actor of all time. Wow, really? What did What's, you think of him yeah. in this? Yeah. Oh, I From mean, what you remember? I think watching this is one of the reasons I 
realized, oh, I need to watch more Vincent Price stuff. I mean, I had seen him in things before, kind of like I think The Killers might have been the first noir I've ever seen because mm-hmm. of because that's uh, Hemingway, right? And so, mm-hmm. being an English major, I've you know lot, watched a lot of famous literary adaptations and stuff, and I've known Price since I was a kid from watching Poe adaptations. And so I knew him, but this is the film I think that made me think, okay, I really need to go back into his filmography. And I have watched several of his films over the, over the past couple of years. To close on Laura and then to move into Lady from Shanghai, I have a second question from Laura. I think Laura invites us to ask some very important questions. You know, so the first important question was about the typewriter in the bathtub and so the, the <laughs> second question I have is, whomst among us hasn't hidden a shotgun in an antique clock? <laughs> I mean, I, I just feel like that's another universal experience. I think that's the strength of this film. I think this film, speaking of the person who did hide the shotgun in the antique clock and was the person in the bathtub, so connection there, I... As an English person, it's really funny how you encounter things and you start seeing the connections within a week. So this last week, Sam's students were talking about Robert Browning. One of their his one of her student teachers taught uh, Porphyria's Lover, which was a fun experience for everyone. But I kept thinking during this about My Last Duchess because not only because of the painting, which is the big thing in that poem, but also because the motivation for the murder was that her longtime partner, Lidecker, was basically saying, oh, she smiled at other men, so now she's never going to do that again. You know, like, I, if she, you know, <laughs> she won't smile at me, which is very much that last duchess, you know, type of, type of attitude. So I think that that's a really interesting parallel to go back to another literary touch point. But also, I think there's a lot about Laura... And the fact that she gets stuck in this relationship with someone and that she feels like she has to stay in it because some part of her knows that Lidecker will destroy her in one way or another if she tries to leave. I think that's actually very relatable to a lot of people. Like this idea that he has, like he's older than her. He has all this influence over her and her career. Um, And there is like this really this really darkness to it. Um, And you can't really see it in the way that he tells the story, but especially later in the film, you can see it in the way that she interacts with him. And frankly, to me, that's the most terrifying part of this whole film. So I definitely would recommend it. I think it's a great film. Let's pivot over to our last film for today. uh, The 1947 film, the lady from Shanghai, the hot mess that is Orson Welles both stars in and directs this film <laughs> you had a hard Tessa. time saying that <laughs> i ugh. he is a he is a mess that man is a mess absolutely and the fact that he made this film with his at the time estranged wife rita hayworth i think kind of demonstrates a little bit of that mess but it's actually a really interesting story how this film got made because wells was directing around the world which was a musical stage adaptation of the jules verne novel around the world in 80 days in 46 and he like he was making music with cole porter and there was this very expensive production um that was that was happening for this particular play and he ran out of money so he asked 
Columbia Pictures president at the time, Harry Cohn, to send him the money to continue the show. And in exchange for that, Wells promised to write, produce, and direct a film for Cohn. So this is that film. This is the film that he traded on in order to make his his stage musical. So he decided to adapt the novel If I Die Before I Wake by Sherwood King. He actually agreed to adapt it without actually seeing reading the novel. Like he had no idea what this novel was about, but he knew the daughter of Sherwood King and she was like saying you should adapt this. So he was just like, sure, uh, I need to make a film for free. I guess I'll do this book. I guess I'll do a noir. So he makes this film. The version of the film that he ends up with was over two and a half hours long. That funhouse scene at the end, the famous funhouse scene, was over 20 minutes of the film. So 20 minutes of Orson Welles tumbling through a funhouse with mirrors would have actually been the ending of that film. It was supposed to be this big climactic moment. The studio and Cone were obviously not happy about this. And so, like many of his films, they ordered reshoots. They ordered a new musical score. They cut the film down to its now 88-minute runtime. So, Wells took his name off of the film. Um, he, is act- he is the director of the film, but he is an uncredited director because he didn't feel like the final product matched exactly what he wanted. This seems pretty on par for Wells' career. This was constantly happening to him when it came to studios ever since Citizen Kane, right? That was the only one he had complete control over. So I I think that that's... It's funny that that kept happening to him, but at the same time, we had this conversation after watching it. I'm not convinced Wells is a good director. I mean, Citizen Kane is obviously considered one of the best films of all time. I actually think he's a better cinematographer than he is a director, Obviously, there are these shots in Lady from Shanghai that are brilliant, um, specifically that scene in the mirror at the end and the scene in the aquarium where they're plotting and you can see the sharks swimming in the background. That's like very well done. But the dialogue is a little too on the nose, I think, in this film. And the plot is very confusing. Um, It's got a lot of the vibes but the plot itself just doesn't make sense the characters do things that don't make sense and so to me this was as sam mentioned one of my least favorites of these three and it was the one that i had picked because i had not seen this one before uh jared what did you think about this film you you also watched this for the first time is that right yeah this has the problem that a lot of movies and I don't think this is one but a lot of movies that are considered classics has for me uh Sam you groaned earlier at the western I think that's a genre that has the problem this movie has which is why are there so many just average looking white men in this movie (laughs) and I kept thinking oh that's going to be a part of the plot twist the fact that these two guys kind of look alike but no, it's not. It has nothing to do with it. So I'm like, okay, well now I'm really confused about why there's so many annoying white men in this movie. I wonder <laughs> like, if that was going to be a plot point in Wells' original. Like, I am curious to know what his original was like if the studio thought it was too complicated. Well, I think there's a I think there's something to the idea that these guys all suck. Oh yeah. And so everyone in this movie sucks. And so Puppet Master is gonna like try to get them all to take each other out so she can be free. I mean, if that's not a way to take care of a bunch of boring white people that you know, men who are bothering you, I I, mean, I can't <laughs> think of it. I mean, like that that seems right. 
What did we think about Wells's Irish accent? He plays Good. Irish sailor and novelist mm. Michael O'Hara, who saves Hayworth's character from a kidnapping in a park and then gets enmeshed in this cat and mouse game between her and her husband. But he's very Irish in this film. Every male voice in this film, like, annoys me. It's <laughs> the point. I'm like, is this an SNL sketch? Like, what is, is it supposed to be funny? Yeah, I don't know if he's very Irish. He's very something. Yeah, I don't. I I don't know if <laughs> I buy him as an Irish, Irishman. I will say that the opening line was amazing. When I start out to make a fool of myself, there's very little can stop me. Uh, he has some great lines, but he's a boob. It, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, like most of the film seems to be him like opining about the fact that he was taken in by her character. Even though, I don't know, like, I just, like you said, Jarrett, sometimes I'm like, okay, like, this feels like you're displacing a lot of your guilt onto this person for some of the things that you've done. (laughs) Especially because I feel like the signs that she wasn't a great person were there the whole time. Yeah, this is probably, of the three films, the one where it most seems like the main character is really trying to convince us that it's this woman's fault, not his. Right. And she comes across, she's clearly trying to cultivate this, like, very innocent look. Like, she seems very helpless. She says, help me, several times in the in the film. When it comes to, like, these very mundane things, like, help me put my, my coat on, help me do this. Until she isn't helpless, right? Until she's the one marshalling this uh, gang in Chinatown to kidnap him, basically, <sighs> so she can kill him. Um, but at the same time, like, he's the one who's like, you had a gun the whole time, like at the beginning, like, why didn't you use it? You know, there's all these signs that she's actually entrapping him to like come along with them on this yacht. The name of the yacht is Cersei, (laughs) which is the name of the (laughs) the witch who, you know, transforms Odysseus's men into pigs. So I feel like, I don't know. Like, I know he says that he's a fool, but like, come on, that much of a fool? Like I don't, I don't really understand. Uh, my my checkoff yeah. buzzer did go off when the gun comes up in the first act. Yeah, yep, yep. That gun has to be used. It's in her purse. It has to. It has to come up. The other thing too is that I think this movie wants to be about class. It isn't. Yeah. But it wants to be. It has some moments where they try to talk about money and how it corrupts and how people are reliant on these corrupt rich people, but none of it actually gets teased out or like discussed in any kind of meaningful way. Although I go ahead. Can I make a annoying, potentially annoying connection? Yes. Which is that what I've, I've seen recently in the trend of every horror film being about trauma (laughs) is that now it seems like, every horror script has to have like a character who's experienced trauma or has an addiction or something. And it's just like, Oh, well we did the thing, right? Like we made like this movie, like we made it about class, right? Because there are characters talking about money. So we did the thing, right? We checked that box. Guys, guys, I've never told anybody this. I have body dysmorphia. Yeah. (laughs) Have you seen Bodies, 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 Jared? 
Not yet. Okay. It, it is on my list, did, and I have been. It tries to also feeling left out as everybody's catching up with it. I, I, I didn't. It's not my favorite, and I, I know that's it. heresy. I know I'm going to be kicked out of the pop culture church. I'm going to be excommunicated. We're just making all our friends mad. I know, <laughs> but that is by far the best joke in the movie. Is that what you're saying, Jarrett? Is a major part of that movie, and it is satirized. It's it's mm, yeah. it's you're gonna you're gonna like it. You're gonna like you're that, gonna like those it. Parts. I did love the a cab undertones of Michael and his friends. At one point, one of his compatriots compares a cop's badge to other types of weapons that can be used as an edge in the fight, and he seems very yeah. distrustful of cops in general, which. That motif is the best part of this film. Yeah, I think. that that was very interesting. I wish they would have explored that more, especially because halfway through the film, there's this sharp turn into legal drama. Um, what did you all yeah. think about the way that this kind of goes from this domestic noir into like a legal noir? But it also kind of goes into again being comedy because it's like the legal, the courtroom drama part of it is more like courtroom comedy including like having a studio audience in the court to <laughs> laugh at all the jokes. It's just so all over the place genre wise. It is. And I, I, we've talked on the show before about my love for the, the Kings, the do the Kings duo um, of the good fight and the good wife. This judge seems like the progenitor of the judges in those two shows, which are often very like, bossy and they're very funny and they have like these personalities that you don't really see in a lot of like earlier legal drama types of things and I was surprised to see it in this film to see that this judge was kind of like you know why don't you tell me what I'm supposed to overrule and then I'll tell you what my decision is like there's kind of that like personality there um yeah the lawyer cross-examines himself yeah, that was yeah. yeah it's up it, to and including being an uncooperative witness. Yes, uh, I thought that that was very funny. I like my films to have levity, an element of them. In fact, I often complain when films don't have that. But I, I feel like having a whole set piece that is that, like it needs to be sprinkled throughout. Not <laughs> like the like the bowling lines, right? Like I went to the bowling alley yes. and I. I Rolled a few lines. That that's the kind of comedy you're talking about, right? Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> a witty character throughout. Um, not. Let's have this whole other movie in the middle of this movie. So weird. Well, and we should also talk a little bit about Arthur, who is the husband of Elsa, and he is disabled which is supposed to symbolize his evil and moral degeneracy and his impotence, which comes up also several times in the film. Um, he's supposed to be like less of a man than Michael, right? Because he fights his battles legally and through trickery and not, you know, honestly, like Michael does. Obviously this is a trope, right? To have the evil character be physically disabled so we can see the evil that is inside of him. But what did you all think about the way this this movie wants to tell us some things about this sort of battle that he and Ilsa are locked in. What did you all think about the way that's portrayed in this? I think it's also like a, a generational thing where there's this scene where he's talking about, you know, why shouldn't these two young people be in love? 
even though one of them's my wife. And I'm sure at the time it's supposed to read as like either he's lying or drunk or it's like you said, he's less of a man because he sees things that way. And I'm more so like, oh, I like this guy. Like, I I like the way he thinks. (laughs) You know, I get very annoyed by how many films are, uh, their plots rest on heteronormativity. So I, you know, in monogamy. So I I liked that part, but I imagine it's meant to be a criticism of him, not a good characterization point. Right. And then, of course, there's this, like, motif throughout the film about how they're both sharks and that they'll both eventually kill each other. I liked the idea of that motif, even though it was hit a little hard, especially at the end. But I also feel like we should have seen more evidence of it throughout the film. Like it's like this, this film wants us to see them this way, but also doesn't want us to know that the murderer was actually her until the end. Cause it has to have that classic noir twist. And so it's, it kind of feels like it's working at cross purposes. I think the big problem with this movie is not only is an hour hacked off of it, but when you consider reshoots, really it's lost. I mean, it could have lost at least half, if not over half of its original thing. And I mean, I, he's a hot mess, but he knows how to do ideas. And, you know, we see that in Citizen Kane. So I know that he was trying to do something with the nautical element. I know he was trying to do something with the courtroom element. I know he was trying to do something with Chinatown, which, you know, gets picked up with Jake Giddies in, in the 70s. You know, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Like, we, wh- that gets picked up later and built on. And I, and I know, I have a feeling those are more connected than we think. But when you destroy a film in the way that Cone did, which, by the way, Frank Capra, as, as I've already mentioned before, was one of the few people who knew how to work Cone. Cone was a very strong personality, and it took a lot of capital with him, uh, personal capital, to really influence him. And I don't think Wells stood a chance at this point. But I'm willing to bet there's a lot better reasons for the existence of those set pieces. You know, um, you know, the courtroom one doesn't come across very well, but the funhouse mirror one does. I bet you there's a lot stronger connections between those different parts of the film in the original. Doesn't mean it's good. It might not be, but yeah, I bet it makes a lot more yeah, sense. <laughs> well, uh, so what you're saying Does he is still we should have, have the accident a... in the original version. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is we should have a final cut of Well, there was a big Lady discussion. from Shanghai. Like we had a final cut with Blade Runner. Well, to to get away from Blade Runner and back to Orson Welles, the Magnificent Ambersons is the example of a film that, you know, based on a novel, another one that he directed and the studio uh, just, it is from all, from all accounts, unrecognizable, the finished version from what Orson Welles shot. There's been a lot of restoration work to get it back. So there is a version of um, what Wells originally did. I haven't seen either version. But when you start talking about film preservation, I think there's a lot to that. I think you have some directors who don't like the idea. Like, I took those out of the film for a reason. 
or regardless of what happened to it, this is the final version of the film. Don't mess around with it. I, I mean, I think a lot of artists enjoy seeing works in progress. Like, what did this look like in sketch form? What did this look like at this point? I think there's a lot of room to enjoy something other than the final product. I think we should do more of that. I think we should do more reconstruction of rough cuts and first drafts. The rumor uh, that was talked about earlier this week is that Jake Lloyd says there's a 10-hour version of Phantom Menace, and he's seen it. You know, he's a kid. Who, who knows? But we do know a lot of stuff was taken out of that film. We know that if he saw an early work version of the film, it had unfinished effects and things like that. Yeah, I'd love to see that which is the exact opposite of what George Lucas thinks. But I think Orson Welles is a really great example of if we just had these things preserved and we could see like five different versions of this film, I think that'd be interesting. And I'd certainly like the film a lot more. That's it. I'm done. I'm going to get off the soapbox. And I'm going <laughs> to put it in the closet. It's gone. So the last thing I did want to mention about this, because you already brought it up with the Chinatown sequence at the end of this, and it's supposed to connect with her history as someone who lived in Shanghai for a while. Noir does have this obsession with Chinatown um, as a as a trope. A lot of times it's very racist, their obsession with Chinatown. I will say at least this film got Asian actors to play Asian people, which is nice. Um, you know, it's like the least you could do, but it is obsessed with the Chinatown as this space that's lawless. It's strange. It's an exotic landscape where anything could happen. And, you know, you've already mentioned the film Chinatown, which very much tries to capitalize on this as a space. But I mean, you can see this influence in to bring back up Blade Runner in Blade Runner. I mean, none of the, the Chinese or Asian and Twin Peaks. And Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean, there's this very interesting obsession that noir has with these parts of the city that are considered lawless. And in early noir, especially, that's Chinatown. Um, I think maybe later they tend to move away from the racialization of that, but they still want the city to be this, like, strange landscape in which anything could happen. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing how that develops as we continue to watch more neo-noir films. All right, Jarrett, before we close out, I want to give you the last word on 1940s noir. What have we learned today? <laughs> Did we learn something? I, I, I feel like you um, remember the Animaniacs, Wheel of Morality, turn, 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 tell us the lesson that we should learn. Being a rich man, keeping a beautiful woman is probably a bad idea. Do you think at the end of the day that neo-noir personally is neo-noir more interesting than than first wave if you will noir i mean i'm the wrong person to ask that question because i always think the thing about the thing is more interesting than the thing oh that's 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 just i i wanted your take on that i i had a feeling that was it um i mean it's like how spaghetti westerns are better than westerns yeah i guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think (laughs) Ryan agrees with me. Sure. Speaking There's our Ryan shout out. Well, 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 well. <laughs> Speaking of Ryan, guess who's going to be with us next week? Oh, I didn't even plan that. That was a great segue on my part. I just want to say mm. I unconsciously did that. <laughs> I hope you're happy. 
We're going to be moving into the 1980s to talk about the Coen Brothers' debut film, Blood Simple. And we will be watching something I have been waiting to watch for a very, very long time. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about Blue Velvet. I'm excited. It's gonna, it's I haven't be seen any of these thing. films, so they're all, they will all be new to me. It's going to be great gonna be something we won't be talking about westerns this time <laughs> Jarrett, sam i might have to revoke your gen x card having not seen blue velvet i know <laughs> you know i haven't seen lost highway either but i feel like i've listened to the soundtrack enough times that i can that i'm fine i'm okay <laughs> Jarrett, where can people find you and your podcast online uh, Wild Pretty Things is the podcast. It's on all the things, including YouTube. I'm Gernoise, again, on things that I have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with. That's G- G-R-R noise. Yes, we're assuming that by the time we release this, nothing has changed. That seems like a very good supposition. Tessa, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I mean, again, unless something has changed between now and this episode coming out, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can find me online at Twitter for now at Sam underscore Morris nine and on Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. You can also find more from Tessa and myself on moviejohn.com. That's moviejawn.com. Tessa just had a very nice retrospective on Dracula. Um, so that'll been out for a couple weeks by then. Perhaps we'll see something else soon. Um, you're going to, sometime during Noir Vemper, see more about my hot takes on 1940s noir films. Tons of fun. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. What pop culture you've crossed off your list lately. What you'd like for us to talk about on a future podcast or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.